Good to have you with us. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you, an honor and a joy for me. I live in California, right near the happiest place on earth. We hear Disneyland's fireworks every night from our house, so we are reminded what time it is and what time it's to go to bed. So anyway, I'm here with my daughter. My wife and son are back in California this morning, probably still in bed. Pray for them. Um, But I've been following along with your church these last few weeks online, which has been really exciting. I love heroes of faith. I love learning about men and women of faith. And so last week's sermon on Rahab and the previous week on Moses. And then if you come to the evening service on Esther, all of those have been incredible stories of faith. And we're just going to continue in that this morning, uh, just with a little bit of a, a different twist on it. When I was 16 years old, I was doing geometry homework in my bedroom and trying to do geometry homework in my bedroom. And do you remember that, anyone, from a long time ago? And somehow I stumbled onto this radio preacher. And uh, I no longer could focus on angles and proofs and shapes. I was listening to stories about Abraham and Moses and David. And it was actually a preacher from Texas, a guy named Dr. Tony Evans. And I don't know how a 16-year-old was listening to Dr. Tony Evans, but I was. And I was absolutely transfixed and captured by these stories of the great heroes of faith from Hebrews 11. So much so that I remember Tony Evans uh, joking around even as he preached, and he said, do you know why David gathered five smooth stones? And I'm listening, no, why? He only needed one to kill Goliath. And he said, because Goliath had four brothers. He was going to wipe out the whole family. <laughs> I was like, I like this guy. I like this guy. This morning I want to tell you a story, a little bit of my own story, And how I came across uh, another kind of champion of faith, another kind of hero of faith that rarely gets talked about, that rarely gets mentioned. So I was 29 years old, and I had just finished seminary. Actually, I back up a little bit further. I started my career as a businessman. The Lord led me out of that after a couple of years and had a different contribution for me to make to God's kingdom. And so I pursued four years in seminary, a Master of Divinity degree, and my wife, as I like to say, was my sugar mama supporting me through seminary. And when I finished, since she had been supporting me, I said, sweetheart, we've been chasing my dreams for four years. What are your dreams? She said, ever since I was a 13-year-old girl, I want to go all the way around the world in a single shot. Not just go to one place and come home or go to two places and come home. She said, I wanted to go all the way around the world. So we were 29, we had no kids, no mortgage, not very, much, uh, pos- not very much possessions, and so I said, let's do it. We packed all of our stuff in storage, and for four and a half months, 132 days around the world. And it was an incredible trip. We had two goals. It wasn't just to sit on beaches and, uh, you know, go to fancy places. Our, our goals were this. Uh, number one, we wanted to learn to walk by faith. And number two, we wanted to learn to become global Christians. We know, as we just was said and prayed, that God is working all over the world. Cambodia, Venezuela, Broken Arrow, California, believe it or not, God is at work. And we wanted to see it. We wanted to be a part of it. And so probably a third of the time we were visiting missionaries that our church supported or our families supported, just wanted to see the work that they were doing on the ground. Maybe another third of the time, we were just wandering, finding our way. And a third of the time, we went to places that we'd always wanted to see, things we'd always wanted to do, like you have to see the pyramids in Egypt, right? So we saw the pyramids in Egypt. Or you have to go on a safari in Kenya, so we went on a safari in Kenya. But while we were visiting uh, some missionary friends of ours in India, in the city of New Delhi, uh, 
these guys, uh, we, we supported them. Uh, the wife had been in our small group for seven years, and we saw, got to see their work up close in India for two straight weeks. And in the middle of this time with them, uh, my friend Arvind there, who's a pastor, he said, if you ever go to Sydney, Australia, you should meet a friend of mine named Simon and ask him about something called gospel patronage. I said, that's crazy. We already have tickets. We'll be in Sydney, Australia in two weeks. And he said, great, I'll connect you over email. And so at that point, we had been traveling for four months, and we had sweatshirts and backpacks and uh, jeans, and that was it. And we show up in downtown Sydney, Australia, in this very, you know, the, if you've been to Sydney, you know there's, there's a legitimate downtown business district where lots of finance people work and things get done that are very important, and here we are in jeans and sweatshirts. <laughs> And we're told to meet this man on the 31st floor of his office building. And so we go up to the, you know, if you've ever been to a really fancy, fancy office, you know, the, the, the front desk is just massive. They're just saying, we don't, we don't care about real estate because we can just use all of this for one lady who's sitting behind it, right? And so we say, you know, we're here to meet with Simon. And she does one of these, you know, no, you're not. No, no, yes, we are. And so she checks the list and, okay, she calls him and this silver-haired British businessman in a nice suit comes out and he takes us for coffee. So we go to coffee. I don't like hot, co- hot coffee, so I'm having hot chocolate, even as an adult. And uh, my father-in-law calls that kids' coffee, so I'm still doing kids' coffee. But we're in the middle of our coffee with this British businessman named Simon. I said, I'm supposed to ask you about something called gospel patronage. I don't even know what that is, but just, just share it with me. And he says that whenever we look in history and we look at the great movements of God, the times when God touched down and heaven met earth, the reformations, the revivals, the great spiritual awakenings in history, when we dig in and we look at those movements up close, what we see is that there was always a pioneering leader, a spiritual leader, someone who is going to be the mouthpiece or the spokesperson. Think of like a, a Martin Luther or a John Calvin or George Whitfield or John Wesley or some of these, someone who's going to trumpet the gospel, preach the word of God, and blast it out to the world. And I said, Yeah, that's not news to me. And he said, But when we dig deeper and we look closer, what we find is that those individuals who are called by God to speak his word to the masses were not alone. They weren't lone rangers. I know biographies get written about their lives, and they are heroes of the faith. But when we look more closely and dig through history and uncover archives, we find every time those people were supported by someone else who is generally gifted in business and generosity. He gave me a few historical examples, but the essence of this, the essence of it was this. Behind every great work of God, God's going to raise up someone to proclaim the gospel, and he's going to raise up someone to be the patron of the gospel. Someone's going to speak, and someone's going to send. Someone's going to uh, go, and another person's going to give, but they are partners in the work of God. Now, this absolutely blew my mind because I had studied business at a university, in your, your university. I had worked in business. My parents are business people. My wife's parents are business people. All of our siblings are business people. And he shared three little stories over a 45-minute coffee that changed the trajectory of my life. I'll share one of those with you a bit later this morning. But it was, it was this idea landed on me. Are you telling me that people who aren't the preachers, they're not the missionaries, most people who will never go to a foreign field or stand on a stage like I am right now preaching a sermon are critical in the work of God? 
not just critical in a way that we say that perfunctorily, but no, no, they're actually, if, if you extract them from a great move, movement of God, that movement would, have ha- would not have happened, and he said yes. <laughs> so I began to dig into this idea in scripture. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Do you guys like the Bible in this church? Okay, good. I like it too. A lot, a lot. This book is alive. I want to show you something you've probably read over many times in Scripture. Um, You've probably seen some of these names before, but here's how this landed on me as a 29-year-old that that day. You're reading from Luke chapter 8 in the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Are you there? All right, I want you to see it for yourself. Soon afterward, he, this is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Okay, this is him him proclaiming, right? Jesus is proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Verse 2, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom... Seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Stop there. (laughs) Did you see that? Now, I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but when Jesus uh, left his business as a carpenter or a stonemason or however that worked out in the first century, and took on this mission of traveling from town to town and village to village and city to city, preaching, always preaching. How was he funded? Because I'm pretty sure he still ate for those three years. And how were his expenses taken care of? And now it wasn't just him, it was 12 others with him. I don't know what I assumed before reading these verses. I must have assumed it was just the miracle of fishes and loaves every day for lunch. And the disciples are like, what's he going to do today? How many loaves? How many baskets are going to be left over? This is going to be incredible. Or I assumed perhaps that, you know, he can tell his disciples exactly where the best fishing spot is and they can drop their nets down and they can pull it in and they're going to have plenty to eat. Or they could have started a fishing business, right? 163 here for ministry, and then these 163 will sell. And you just go, okay, that would have worked. Jesus could have done that. Jesus could have started the best winery in the Roman Empire. Turning water to wine, we'll sell a few bottles for ministry. This is going to be great. It's only for communion. Sell them wine. And that's not what happens, actually. We're given the names of three women, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, and it says, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, think about that. God is sending his son to earth on a 33-year mission trip, and he could have provided for Jesus, just put him in a really wealthy family with a nice large trust fund, and all of his expenses would be taken care of. But when God Almighty looks down from heaven with a strategy for how he wants to advance his son in proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, he says, I'm going to call three women to exercise faith because giving always takes faith. I'm going to call these women to exercise faith, give generously, and come alongside my son and his boys. 
Now, when I look at that, I don't think, oh, that's just one example. I think this is the example for how God works. When God wants to fuel the proclamation of the gospel, he's going to call people to step forward. Now, you know, like I do, if you have friends who are missionaries or you've heard of missionaries having financial needs, generally what they'll say is, just, just pray for me, just pray for me. And I get it, and I pray for them. But generally, I don't, I don't know how they think the, the finances are going to come in. They think, I think, just pray for me, and maybe God will do a miracle, and it'll be fishes and loaves, and maybe it'll be the fishing business or the winery. And generally, pray for me that people would step forward and give generously because that's how God works. Now, he does do miracles sometimes. He does do miracles of provision sometimes. I've experienced some of those, and some of you have as well. But God's normal working and how the gospel is going to advance here and around the world. Or he's going to gift some who are proclaimers. He's going to gift others who are givers. And when those parts of the body, when the body is working together as one, the gospel explodes on a community, it explodes on a country. Now, who were these women? Mary called Magdalene. Now, wow, from whom seven demons had gone out. I don't know what kind of past she had. I don't know what kind of family she was raised in. But uh, to be among Israel in that time and be uh, that full of evil spirits, she probably had some difficulties going on in her past. Verse 2 again, if you're there, still look with me. It says, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So we got Mary here who's been healed of evil spirits. It mentions her. And then we go to verse 3. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, think with me for a minute. Do you think Herod's household manager was a prominent position? Yes, let's answer that together. A very prominent position. Think wealth manager, think property manager, think estate manager for a high leading government official in that day. So the high leading government official's wealth finance uh, manager was a guy named Chusa. Now they probably had it made, living in a nice seaside town, all the property and expenses paid for that they would need. But if we look back to verse 2, it says that the women who were patrons of Jesus have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So here's what I would like to imagine. Mary, obviously it says, had been healed of evil spirits. So that leaves us two women who had been healed of infirmities. I imagine Joanna being a prominent woman, probably a woman with influence, probably a woman of fashion, probably a woman of connections. But then she gets sick. Now it's the kind of sickness that came on pretty suddenly and seemed to be quite unexpected. So she was a woman with resources and a woman with connections, and so what would she do? She would obviously go see the best physicians, the best doctors, get the best medical treatment possible in her day. And if you were sick and you had access to resources and could pursue the best medical care of your day and that didn't work, what would you do? Well, of course, you'd get a second opinion and go see the second best medical physicians and medical treatment you could get of the day. And I'm assuming that that's what Joanna does. But when that doesn't work, then what do you do? At that point, you feel very small. You know, Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a man to go through an eye, a camel to go through an eye, a, a eye of a needle. Here's what I think. Why can't a camel fit through an eye of a needle? It's too big. <laughs> if we don't read into it any more than that, the camel's just way too big. Why can't rich people, why does Jesus say it's difficult for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven? 
They're too big. They're too big. The way is narrow, Jesus says. And, and the way to get into the kingdom of heaven doesn't come by puffing up your chest and standing real tall. It actually comes by getting very small and bowing down. So Joanna gets to this place where she who was mighty, she who was prominent, she who was fashionable, no longer feels very big and important. But she hears about a well-known, unusual Galilean preacher. He wasn't a Pharisee. He didn't have the religious training that most of the religious professionals did in that day. There was no seminary background. He'd never written a book. But he's reported for doing all kinds of miracles. All kinds of wonders were happening. And this man named Jesus was in the center of this swirl. I mean, crowds would follow him and people would run up to him and people would climb trees just to see him. And he went from town to town and village to village and his reputation just kept spreading and spreading. So I believe Joanna, in desperation, goes to see Jesus. Now, I don't know if she was the woman who had an incurable blood disease and Jesus immediately stopped it or she had some other illness and we don't find her anywhere else. But I believe in that moment when she approached Jesus in faith, Jesus reached out and touched her and healed her. And I believe in that moment, Joanna said, oh my goodness, how could I get it so wrong? I've been following rules. I've been pursuing a religion. All of a sudden, the Savior is here. Nobody has this kind of power. There's no one like him. And so she begins to be a disciple of Jesus. And she begins to say, how can I use my wealth to help as many people as possible meet the same healer and savior that I met? Jesus Christ had gospel patrons named Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. If you think that's one example, I'd like to just flip with you to Romans chapter 16. Now, this is the end of Romans chapter 16 is the last chapter of perhaps the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world, certainly the greatest theological letter that we know of, and it is dense and rich and thick. And Romans chapter 16 is the kind of chapter that you either don't read or you skim really fast when you're reading it. Why? Because it's a long list of names and greetings and thank yous, and most of us go, okay, that's not the meat of the book. That's not the essence of the theology, so let's move right past it, but Look how Paul begins in a long list of 20-some names. He begins with a very prominent person. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, maybe a tiny bit different. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, some versions say deacon. Some versions say servant on that word patron. I think patron is the most descriptive word for actually what Paul is trying to communicate. Phoebe, this prominent woman, has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She's been supporting my ministry. And I think sometimes she said, Paul, you're really good at making tents, and I'm glad that you can fund your ministry that way, but you're actually even better at preaching the gospel, so let me pay for some of those expenses that you incur, and just go get them, Paul. Go get them, Paul. The time is short, and you have a calling from God to go to the nations of the earth. And Paul says, greet her, church in Rome. She's hand-carrying, I think Phoebe hand-carried the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome. So Paul is greeting, wanting her to be greeted first. 
She's been a patron of many and myself as well. Don't mistreat Phoebe. Don't look down on Phoebe. Don't think Phoebe's just a little servant girl running an errand for me. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, if you're a business guy for a minute, there's three words, you, three letters you like to think about um, in business or investment, and it's ROI. What do you think the return on investment would be in investing in the Apostle Paul's ministry? You ever think of that? You get to heaven and stand before God and he says, hey, what what'd you do with what I gave you? And you say, I put the Apostle Paul into play so he could get to Rome. Oh, yeah, pass, okay, good, next. <laughs> An amazing investment. Paul had a gospel patron. Now, there's a little book that you probably read this morning before church called Third John. Anyone read that in the last year? It's, it's just a one-page book. You could read it in five minutes and say, I read a book of the Bible today, right? Third John... I'm going to read you a couple verses from 3 John. It's a letter from John to this man named Gaius. And here's what John says to Gaius. 3 John, starting in verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So Gaius is doing something for these brothers who are strangers. What's he doing? Well, these brothers, it says, strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Your mind's awake. Were you tracking with that? Gaius, great job. You've been housing these traveling preachers, evangelists, missionaries, whatever they were. They've gone out for the sake of the name and they haven't accepted money. They're not preaching for hire among unreached Gentile people. And so they demand our support. They need our little, our, our backing, our help. And John reminds him, we ought to support people like these. That we may be second class Christians in the work of the gospel. Is that what he says? That we may just fund other people to do their ministry. We don't really have a ministry. Is that what he says? That we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, if you're not a pastor or missionary, raise your hand, please. <laughs> okay. You have the ability to be a fellow worker for the truth. You have an ability to be a partner in the work of the gospel. This is not a small role. It is integral, critical, central, crucial, glorious in the work of God. John writes to Gaius, reminding him that Paul greets the church in Rome with his patron Phoebe carrying the letter. And Jesus Christ had three women carrying him and his ministry for three years. This is how God works. I heard some of these stories and these rumblings that day in Sydney, Australia about this mighty working of God. When someone speaks, someone's going to send. And when someone goes, someone's going to give and they're partners. And then I began to look in my Bible and go, it's all over the place. I can give you more and more examples, but I want to take you to Romans chapter 10 and just show you again, this is how God works. This is how he works. If we want to become the kind of people that God uses to change the world, we have to understand first how God changes the world. And what we know from Romans chapter 10 is that the, the, the problem and the great need in the world today is not, is not political reform. The answer is not that we all just need more education and the next generation coming up just, just needs to know better. They just need to, just to learn a little bit more. 
If only they understood the mistakes they were making, then they wouldn't make such mistakes. No, that's not the answer from the God of the Bible. It's not politics, it's not reform, it's not education, it's not, the be- it's not better health care, it's not more technology. The great need of the world is to be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What God is doing in the world today, all around the world, is saving people. Saving him from what? Saving us from sin. The Bible says we are all sinners. We wake up in the world choosing self and not choosing God, loving other things instead of loving God and putting him first. And there's a penalty to pay for our sin. It's death and hell. And the answer to that is not just I need a a, a good therapist or I need some good counseling. The answer is not that I just need to unlock all of the wounds of my heart or let go of myself and just empty myself and not be so selfish. No, the Bible says yourself needs to be saved. You need a heart transplant on the inside, the kind of heart transplant that only God can do. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how does that happen? Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? All right, three steps. Someone preaches a sermon. Someone hears, and when they hear, they don't just listen, they hear and take it into their heart, and they believe and are saved. That's how God works. Someone's going to preach, someone's going to hear, take it in, and believe, and their eternal destiny is saved. They are changed forever. That's what God is doing. That's the business that God is up to right here in Oklahoma and around the world. But there's one more step, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, I used to think that only God did the sending. Isaiah says, here am I, God send me. But what we just read in 3 John about Gaius, John says to Gaius, send them, send them on their way in a manner worthy of the gospel. That God is, he uses preachers to communicate his eternal truth and his life-saving message He doesn't just drop that down by a pigeon. He uses people to communicate that message. And so when those people are sent out, when those people are supported, when those people are partnered with, when a church happens to rally around missions and rally around evangelism and rally around the work of God, God doesn't just drop money from heaven to make that happen. He, just like he uses preachers or proclaimers, he uses patrons of the gospel. How will they hear Unless someone is preaching, then how are they to preach unless they are sent? What I want to tell you is that we have different parts to play in the gospel. If you felt like, man, maybe I'm just not good enough. I wish I could have been a preacher. I wish I could have been a missionary, but I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not a good enough speaker. I'm not a good enough teacher. I don't understand the word of God that well. I want to say to you today, you still have an ability to be a hero and a champion of faith. That's not relegated to a certain class of people. It's not relegated to a certain gifting of people. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 outlines all the different kinds of spiritual gifts that God gives. 
and they're to be used in concert, just like the music we heard up here. It wasn't just one instrument being played. It was many instruments being played up here, making a beautiful noise and a beautiful sound to the glory of God. And that's what the church is supposed to be. No matter what your part to play is, you do have a part to play. Not a second-class part, not a junior varsity part, not a backstage part. You have a part to play in the work that God wants to do in the world. This is the discovery that landed on my heart so powerfully with gospel patrons. And what I learned as I dug into this, not just from scripture, but in history, is I found that this book didn't exist 500 years ago. The English Bible. It's only 500 years old. Before then, the Bible had been in Latin in Europe for a thousand years. Translated into this uh, translation called the Latin Vulgate. And that translation was pretty good. But along came a young man who learned Latin and he also learned biblical Greek. And he began comparing what he found in in the original Greek manuscripts and in this Latin translation. And there were a few words that he thought were a big deal in the mistranslation. One of them was do penance. You know the word penance? In the Reformation times, it was people had to do penance in order to be right with God. They had to give certain amounts of money to be right with God. That's not what I'm talking about. Or they had to show up and volunteer or be, you know, do all of the right things or follow all of the right rules. And he said, wait, no, no, no. When we look back in the original Greek, the word isn't do penance. It's repent. Repent. That's a big difference. Turn from my sin and I will become right with God. Turn from my sin and to Jesus or Work for God, please God with giving, please him with service, please him with all of these things, and then he'll be happy with me. Do you see the difference? There was a few key words like that mistranslated in the Latin Vulgate, and they were undercutting the gospel. People didn't understand how they could be saved. They didn't understand what Jesus said. And most of them didn't even read Latin. Latin was sort of this language of the, uh, kind of the academic people, the the priests, the philosophers, the scholars, they knew Latin. Business people, working people, professionals, stay-at-home moms, they didn't know Latin. So everything they received, all the knowledge they received about God was handed down to them in Latin through the church, which meant they didn't know a whole lot. But along came this passionate young man in his 20s. Anyone here in your 20s? You can make a worldwide difference for Christ. You can make a worldwide difference for Christ. He said, I must have the Bible translated into English from the original Greek manuscripts. My people need to know it. My nation needs to know it. They don't know the word of God. So he left his uh, position as a tutor and he went to the city of London. And he was preaching in a little church on Fleet Street. You can go there if you're in London. You can still go there to this day. And a businessman heard him and approached him and said, William Tyndale, I'm Humphrey Monmouth. I've heard God's given you a job to do. It's time you get to do it. Tyndale said, yes, but Bible translation is illegal. The church doesn't want it. The government doesn't want it. They want to keep it in this exalted heavenly language called Latin. We could lose our lives to translate scripture. This is equivalent to heresy. Businessmen, as as you know, businessmen are well acquainted with risk. So he said, what's one more, Tyndale? If God's given you a job to do, it's time you get to work. Come live at my house. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. Get to work. So for six months, William Tyndale lived with this businessman, 
a cloth merchant named Humphrey Monmouth, who history has totally forgotten. And he was translating the Bible for night and day from the Greek originals into the very first English New Testament. And this, is, this was an illegal project, a contraband book. And so when the translation work was done, Humphrey Monmouth used his merchant ships where he was constantly shipping cloth around the world to get William Tyndale over to Germany where all the best printers were. And they began setting up this manuscript to be printed for the very first time. And when it was finished a year later, he called upon his merchant friend again. And they would take these little New Testaments. I saw one in the British Library. It was worth a million pounds. There's only three left in the world. And I tried to use my author credentials to say, <clears throat> could I get behind the thick glass and turn the page? And they said, not on your life. But there's little, little New Testaments, first time in English. And they would put it in a watertight box and drop it in a barrel of oil. Put it in another watertight box, drop it in a barrel of wine. Or they'd unfold it and un, uh, un, unbind it and layer it in with bolts of cloth. And Monmouth would take his merchant ships and smuggle these 3,000 English New Testaments up, into the, up the English Channel, up the rivers, into the arteries, all across the city of London. And these books began to be sold on the black market. You know, it's like one farmer saying to another, I got a copy, one of the 3,000. I bought it for three shillings and two pence. Come to my barn and we're going to read it together. Did you know? Have you heard? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Did you know all the parables and all the stories and all of his prayers? Did you know I now have the Lord's Prayer memorized in our, in our language in English? I can read it. I can read it. And this boom of faith began to spread. As soon as people had God's word, they could not be stopped. There were book-burning parties. There was persecution for them. They were trying to shut out and stamp out the word of God. But it would not be stamped out. People were hungry to know the Lord. And behind it was a wealthy cloth merchant named Humphrey Monmouth. William Tyndale lived in exile the rest of his life. Never married. Died at 41. His final prayer before he was publicly executed, they put him on a little platform and they put a rope or a chain around his neck and pulled it through a, uh, a wood post and they began to pack brushwood around his legs. And there was that moment right before they pulled the noose tight that he looked up to heaven and said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And they pulled the noose, strangled him, and burned his body to give us this book. His patron was imprisoned for a year in the Tower of London, not knowing whether he would live or die. Finally was released and died 10 months after Tyndale. It was like their work and their life's mission was complete. They'd been a team sent from God to give six million English speakers the English New Testament. And their translation was so accurate, it was so good, that over 600 million people in the world today read an English Bible because William Tyndale gave his life for that. And Humphrey Monmouth, his patron, stood with him to support him, to strengthen him, to keep him going, funding him, praying for him, fueling him, encouraging him. When I heard this story, I asked myself, what would happen if you take the businessman out of that equation? What would happen if you have a ministry guy who's got a big burning ambition for God but not the means to do it? 
And the answer is we might not have this book in our language. When God wants to do great things in the world, he always raises up someone who's going to proclaim the gospel and one or many people to be patrons of the gospel to stand with his people. And when that happens, when they come together, it's an explosive effect. What I'm here today to say to you, and I really believe God wants you to hear, is that you could be a hero of the faith. You, yes you, me, no, you could be a champion of the faith. Whatever your gifting is, whatever your business is, whatever your background is, if you're retired, if you're young, if you're just getting started in life, God is not done writing the great stories of history, and he has a part for you to play. Some are going to speak and some are going to send. Will you play your part? Because I believe the work that God wants to do here in Oklahoma, and even in the city of Broken Arrow, is going to involve an army of patrons An army of people coming together to say, I'll lay down what I have so that God's word can reach more people. Just like it did 500 years ago, it was worth everything then, it's worth everything now. No sacrifice is going to go unrewarded by God and no sacrifice is too great. When you understand that Jesus laid his life down for us, the natural response is, God, what can I do for you? I want to live for the one who died for me. You have a chance to do that as a church. You have a chance to do that, to continue to give generously, to continue to play your part as gospel patrons. You could be a champion of faith. The hero, the hall of faith is is not a closed number. The list is not done. The books, history books are still being written today. What's your part to play? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that even now as we pray, you would call some of these men and women to be patrons of the gospel. That when they've wondered for years, what can they contribute? How can they be involved? What's their contribution to the war effort, to the the gospel effort of defeating darkness and bringing your light into the world? And they haven't known. I pray that today would be the day that you thump on their heart and their hearts beat fast and your Holy Spirit whispers, this is you. This is you. And it's good. It's glorious. It's beautiful. I believe there's already many gospel patrons in this church who have been living generously and pouring their lives out for those around the world and here in Oklahoma who need the word of God. Would you make this, a, this a, an army of gospel patrons here in this church? The Marys who have the difficult past, the Joannas who are from high circumstances but need you, the Phoebes who are well-trained and well-equipped the Gaiuses who are sending workers in your name. Jesus, would you come? Would you come and call forth us into our parts to play, each of us, so that this body and your body would advance with great faith and many champions and heroes of the faith would rise up in this place and your word would spread around the world. We love you, Lord, and you're worthy of all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name.